Welcome to Combo Chain, a JRPG Games Club podcast. I'm Paul M. Davis, and I'm joined by... Elisa James. Hello, everyone. Hi, Elisa. It's been a long time. (laughs) It has been. (laughs) Nice to be back again, though. (laughs) Yeah, behind the scenes, I had a major computer issue. My computer stopped working for about eight months, so... (laughs) That's why there haven't been any episodes in about that long. So those of you who stuck with us, I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, yeah, I'm really, really excited to be back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Same here. Definitely. Awesome. Well, yeah. So this episode, we are going to be doing Radiant Historia. So what... What's your background with the game? Actually, with this game, I played it somewhat recently, maybe like a few years ago. It was my younger brother. Like, I think he was just kind of looking through random JRPGs and he came across it and he recommended it to me. And I ended up getting the original playing through that. And then the remake, I actually played through. I think I only finished the remake kind of uh, fairly recently as well, like maybe a year or so ago. So, yeah. Yeah, I have I have kind of a similar re- experience with it too. I think I, yeah, I gave it a try years ago on the DS version, and I didn't really. I just it just didn't grab me. And then when it came out for the for the 3DS, the Perfect Chronology version, I'd always been really intrigued by the premise. So I, you know plunked down the money and got it again. And <laughs> I took to it a lot, a lot better that time. Yeah. And made yeah. It through. But yeah, that was probably only about a year or two ago for me. So.
so yeah, let's get into the development. So Radiant Historia was co-developed by Atlas and Headlock, originally for the DS. Uh, it was released in 2010 and came out in 2011 in North America. And then Radiant Historia Perfect Chronology, which was an expanded version of the game for the 3DS, came out in Japan in 2017 and in North America and Europe the following year. So interestingly, the game shares many members of its development team with Shimigami Tensei and Radiata Stories, which I'm not that familiar with Radiata Stories, are you? Actually, no. This is actually my first foray into it. So I was kind of like, oh, this is a whole thing. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I didn't realize that the game, until I started doing research for this episode, I had no idea that it had so much SMT DNA in it. Yeah, yeah, same. Yeah, which is really cool, especially because it was worked on by people who did Strange Journey. And I think Strange Journey is probably one of my absolute favorite SMT games ever. Like, sorry, I just, I love it so much. But yeah, I'll I'll put that aside. (laughs) No, me too. Me too. It's definitely in the top, top tier. So, absolutely. Yeah, Satoshi Takayashiki, the original concept designer for Radiata Stories, took on the roles of co-director and concept designer, and uh, Hiroshi Konishi was the uh, character designer. Mitsuru Harada of Atlas was the director of the game, and uh, he'd also worked on other SMT games as a planner. There was a number of other people with the uh, backgrounds, including El Kato, Tatsuo Watanabe, Kenichi Takamori, and Yajima. And Wantanabe and Mori in particular had both recently just worked on Strange Journey. Mm-hmm. So Tomohiro Okuno was in charge of designing the 2D assets and Asuko Sumio was in charge of designing in 3D. And so, not surprisingly, I think, Kashiki envisioned Radiant Historia as kind of a throwback to old school JRPGs which yeah. you can see it definitely has almost kind of like a Dragon Quest feel in some in some elements of it before it starts going really crazy with all the different time frames and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so he pitched it to Atlas in 2007, and he came up with the idea for the really cool 3x3 grid-based battle system by himself, but a lot of the other mechanics were developed by members of the Atlas staff. Mm-hmm. Takayoshiki uh, came up with the setting in the world, and Yuki, who'd written the plots for, and say, Devil Survivor and Lancer Wayfarer of Time, was the uh, main writer. Takayoshiki's original idea was to make a historical drama with different versions of the past, which Kanishi said would need a large cast of characters. Even before anything else had been decided, Takayoshiki was already thinking about including time travel in the story. An early concept was to use the idea of immortality, so the main character became a sword that never ages instead of a living person. I can't even imagine how that would Me neither. Takayoshiki was convinced by Atlas to make the main character a person who can travel through time, probably wisely. Their discussion also changed to... Uh, Takeshiki's original idea for the ending, which was that the world was destroyed. So, Takeshiki had some pretty wild ideas, like cool ones, but pretty wild. Not surprisingly, the time travel mechanic was 
a huge challenge for the team to figure out. And Atlas said that uh, Radiant Historia had been their most difficult DS game to make. Yeah, yeah, I could definitely so he, see why. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, we'll get into it. But <laughs> he originally wanted to have 16 endings set across four different countries. Atlas basically said, no, that's not really viable. And <laughs> so <laughs> he kept the story's ability to go in different directions by cutting the number of countries in half and making a more streamlined alternate timeline, which presented its own challenges. Yeah. But he still really wanted to hold on to the idea of it being a historical drama where there was no one who was clearly like in the right or wrong. Right. So yeah, to basically keep track of all of the timelines and everything, Takayoshiki used the Microsoft Excel spreadsheets. And even though this was 2007, I can't imagine there's there, there's better <laughs> there's better flow charting software than Excel. Oh. I can't even imagine what that spreadsheet looked like. But oh my gosh. Just the thought of it gives me a headache. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah. So the first story was written in two months, but the final story and dialogue took six months to finish because of needed changes to timelines that overlapped and, you know, just general, like, continuity issues. <laughs> The gameplay of Radiant Historia, players take control of Stock and a top-down 3D world where they can swing his sword at enemies to push them back and stun them. And throughout the game, Stock learns new skills that he can use to solve puzzles and move the story along. The player starts a battle when they touch an enemy in the overworld. But if the enemy is stunned before the battle starts, the player will start a preemptive strike and get to go first. And during combat, the enemies are on a three-by-three three grid, and the characters you can control are in a row on the right side of the screen. 
when an enemy closes in on a onto the player, their attacks will be stronger, but it will they will also take more damage. So the player can also switch between characters and enemies, which lets them make bigger combos by stacking turns. Also, enemies can be moved around so that more than one is in the same place, and attacks done after that will hurt every enemy until the uh, combo is over. That's such a satisfying mechanic. It is. It's very satisfying. I adore it. <laughs> it feels it feels so good to get them all all in a corner and just kind of go to town on them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so so then we have a mana burst, which are special skills that the player may be able to learn as the game goes on. Every time a character gets hit, a mana gaw fills up, and when the gaw is full, the character can use, you know, those powerful attacks. So, as the game goes on, you have something called the White Chronicle that keeps track of everything that happens, which is, it's basically a journal that keeps track of important plot points. It's really handy if you step away from the game for a long time, you go back to it, you read the White chronicle it's like oh right okay this happened because i know that happens to all of us where we're just like what's going on here like <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <Let's see. laughs> it's, so, it's, it's a necessary feature in any any jrpg but especially this one. Oh yeah i agree i agree <laughs> So during the, uh, the prologue chapter, Stock has to make a big decision that splits history into two timelines, the standard history and the alternate history. The player has to go back and forth between the two timelines to move the story forward. This is because both timelines are connected and affect each other and show the player how their choices affect the story. Many of these paths in time lead to the end of the world, but Stock uses what he knows about the past to find the right path. And then on top of that, you know, players also have different side quests they can complete to learn the truth about the continent and its people. And several of these side quests are needed to unlock the game's true ending. So there are tons of endings in this game. Like, mm-hmm. if, if we had made this episode to follow all those endings, we could probably like three, at least three episodes on that alone. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was really challenging just trying to find a way to get it down to like one episode. It could be, I mean... It could be a mini series in itself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so yeah, moving on to your main characters, you've got a stock. He's your lead. You know, he's your kind of like traditional. You know, doesn't speak much and carries a big sword. <laughs> Less yeah. his actions do the talking kind of guy. He doesn't waste time with small talk and is basically singularly focused on his goal. But and I'm going to kind of a crib from another podcast. But one of the things I did an episode on Radiant Historio not too long ago, and one of the things that they brought up is that how is how refreshing it is to have a grown ass adult as your lead character in a JRPG. And stock is very much that. <laughs> I totally agree with that take. Completely. Oh my god. Then you have Rainy, who's very optimistic. She has a tendency to draw conclusions, which often ends up putting her in awkward situations. She serves as a counterpoint to Marco, the other main character, because she's got an impulsive and bold personality. 
And Marco, who has a very silly design, <laughs> he looks like a little little elf man or something. I don't know. <laughs> How would you describe him? Yeah, I think, I think little elf man somehow works. It's so weird. It's, I don't know. It's strange. Like generally the art design in this game is phenomenal, but I've never been able to get over how strange he looks. Exactly. It's like, what is this? <laughs> kind of a, a contradiction to how silly he looks. He's a very serious character and prefers to act on facts rather than assumptions. He's younger and he looks up to Stock as if he were a father figure. And he wishes basically that there were more people he could fi- call family. Aww. Definitely. Yeah. So moving on to the story, as we mentioned, game has multiple branching paths. And I don't know if you've been watching the rehearsal, but Nathan Fielder is basically, you know, doing these like simulations of different situations that people could be put in. It's kind of like a parody of a reality show. And he creates these incredibly detailed flowcharts for how every situation might go. And we would need flowcharts like that, basically, (laughs) (laughs) trying to account for every chance uh, encounter. And we also can't do a five-hour podcast laying out the paths. So we're going to try and summarize both paths as best as we can. And in the show notes, uh, I found some links to some ridiculously detailed flowcharts if you really want to get deep with it. Okay, so... With that said, so Vainqueer is the continent where the events of Radiant Historia take place, and its human and beast tribe inhabitants live side by side. The certification of the continent is increasing tensions between the warring kingdoms of Alistel and Granorg, which once ruled together as part of a powerful ancient empire. Alistel blames uh, Greynorg for spreading the Sand Plague, a magical illness that drains living beings of their mana energy and turns them to sand. 
Stockton, Alistair espionage agent, is handed a book called The White Chronicle by a superior Hess before he leaves on a mission with mercenaries Rainey and Markle to transport a spy back to Alistair's capital. So yeah, ambushed by Grenorg forces, only a critically wounded Stock makes it out alive. Using the White Chronicle, he's lured into Historia, a world unbound by time, and he's ensured that he can change the future by its rulers, Teo and Lipti. And the design of Historia is very, very cool. It's like this weird, like, M.C. Escher nether region. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a really, like, gorgeously, like, it's like a very, like, lavish design, kind of like how you would want any, like, fantasy world to be designed. Yeah, yeah, it's it's hard to describe other than it's just, it's like a bunch of stairs that are leading up different directions, very Escher-esque, but they're all kind of, like juxtaposed with one another and yeah it's incredible imagery so because of stock's ability to uh, basically uh, turn back time both rainy and marco are spared and so stock is given the option to take one of two paths there's one where he stays under heist's command and another where he joins a military unit headed by his comrade rosh through his interactions with the Beastmen tribes, especially the youthful shaman Ott and the sympathetic warrior Gafka, he's able to advance in both his roles and employ the abilities that he's developed in both timelines. He encounters opposition on his journeys from those who hold the Black Chronicle, a counterpart to the White Chronicle. In both versions of history, he works with and is helped by Gragnor's princess, Ruka, who, with the help of a human soul sacrifice, can halt the sand plague from engulfing Vanquir. He also finds out that the prominent religious leader of Alistair, Hugo, has made a pact with Gragnor to dispose its ruling queen, Procia, and is manipulating the war for his own ends, and that Hess is acting for his own agenda, playing both sides against each other, and has intimate knowledge of the White Chronicle. And who, would have, who would have thought that Hess was a, a shady guy? <laughs> I know, oh my god, what a twist. <laughs> like, from moment one, I'm like, this guy, this guy's no good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And then, so Stock disposes of Procia and vanquishes Hugo in parallel histories. Yeah, so following this, Hess explains that the sacrifices in the ceremony are members of Grenorg nobility who have been revived using a piece of another person's soul and then slaughtered once again in order to rejoin the soul and stabilize Vancure's mana, which is a crazy fucked up process <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to, uh, and this is all to halt the spread of the sand plague aruka's brother stock is revealed to be the planned sacrifice he's brought back to life and given a piece of aruka's soul stock's uncle hess who views the ritual and the sacrifices suffering as meaningless plans to let the sand plague devour vancure and it's then discovered that hess basically kidnapped stock gave him his current name and uh, has been using the Black Chronicle to convince Stock of the sacrifice's futility. Oof. So, 
Stock learns from Hestio and Lipti that the Sand Plague was produced by a rogue spell designed to keep the world's mana stable and the old empire thriving. The empire's remaining monarchy developed the black and white chronicle to assist the ritual, enabling the sacrifice to see hope in the future while the caster focused on the past. Tio and Lipti are the vestiges of the sorcerer who created the chronicles. As the planned sacrifice, Hess fled with the Black Chronicle, reinforcing his fatalistic outlook. Stock and his companions beat Hess while killing the monster Apocrypha, which was formed when Hess fused with the souls of previous sacrifices after his efforts to alter history failed. Ooh, ah, it's always a really creepy thing in, in a JRPG. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very, very disturbing. <laughs> this game goes to some dark places. <laughs> yeah, it does. So yeah, in the uh, conventional ending, Stock vo- voluntarily becomes the sacrifice, enabling the ritual's completion and postponing the Sand Plague's march. After witnessing Stock's unwavering trust in the future, Hess gladly makes the sacrifice in Stock's place in the real ending which is accessible by completing all the events and uh, side missions throughout the game. The other characters try to help rebuild Vancure, including uh, initiating research into means of stabilizing mana, which will nullify the ritual and the necessity for sacrifices. The extended plot of Perfect Chronology sees Stock engaging with a lady called Nemesia on a ship living outside time, gathering artifacts, Stock helps Nemesia pull together a third magical book named the Red Chronicle with the objective of preventing the desertification. Okay, and then once all the relics are gathered, Stock persuades Hess to give the power of the Black Chronicle, then reunites with the group at Nemesia. Nemesia discloses that the desertification is caused by a mana-consuming creature named the Singularity, produced by the Empire's experimentation on Nemesia's secret lover, Rodin, while producing the Chronicles. Using the three Chronicles' combined powers, the group destroys the Singularity, removing the necessity for the sacrifice. Nemesia decides to remain with the comatose Rodin outside time. In their own universe, the protagonists settle down to regular lives, with Stock and Hess parting as friends. Nemesia and Rodin, who is starting to recover from his coma, are pulled into the actual world by Stock, utilizing a freshly produced relic from the Red Chronicle. That's right, and that's basically how, (laughs) in a nutshell, how this crazy story goes.
So uh, yeah, what what are your thoughts on the game? So I I really really like the plot. Like you said, it goes into a lot of dark places, and I think it's really interesting. And the mechanic of time travel is, I mean, it's incredibly unique. Like. I mean, obviously, you've had other games that use time travel, but I really feel like this is the most unique type that I've seen and the most, like, uh, complex. Like, it really kind of grapples with, like, what it would be like for a character to have to move between time like that and then actually manage, like, multiple timelines. So that that was really interesting that you're actually playing through, like, these two major timelines like that and you have to forward the events between them both so and it's and it's interesting because it's kind of jarring but in you know in a purposeful way because it's supposed to be because it's like in this alternate timeline you know you kind of get away from the the whole propaganda that you would have been under normally and you're like helping out your kingdom and then you go to the other timeline where no now you're gonna just dispose the queen <laughs> mm-hmm it's it's very interesting but yeah i really really enjoyed this game a lot like the and like the character designs the setting pretty much like all the those those aspects i can't think of a game that has maybe a more sophisticated and complex use of time travel nothing really comes to mind trying to think of other games that even you know really engage with it in any kind of deep way and this this goes deep and very complex <laughs> and yeah. you know I, I i'd say you know there's there's a couple things i really like this game but Same. i do feel like it has a little bit of a slow start it throws a lot of information at you and it can be a little confusing at the beginning and so it's kind of weird contradiction where it feels like the gameplay and the exploration is a little slow. And meanwhile, all these crazy time travel concepts are being thrown at you. So I, I don't know. It doesn't have the most like, I don't know. Most, or it doesn't have the easiest on-ramp, I might say. But once it starts moving, it's just so incredibly satisfying. And the story is, I, I mean, I feel like these are the kind of stories in JRPGs that we get less and less of nowadays that are yeah, really ambitious and take lots of risks. And, you know, I think that part of that is because of the realities of HD development, you know, it was like the DS and the 3DS were kind of <laughs> the last, hopefully not, but, they kind of feel like they were maybe the last bastion for some of these r games that took really big, ambitious swings story-wise and uh, concept-wise. And yeah, I also I also love the battle system. I think that it's such a cool twist on just a, your basic turn-based positional battle system. Yeah. Especially with the stacking of the enemies and whatnot. It just gives them an it gives them an energy that you know a lot of turn based systems just don't have, yeah, and yeah, you know almost true. almost kind of like almost kind of like a puzzle like quality in a way. Yeah, because you have to sort of figure out like okay, if I want to be able to combo with these enemies, how do I arrange it so this will yeah, and it it really does have like a puzzle feel to it when you're trying to work out how to be the most efficient with that with the battle system. 
Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a very different type of puzzle feel from, you know, like a tactical JRPG where it's more about like pure positioning and, and like, you know, purely about the units you bring in and the positioning you put them in. This one is like in terms of efficient attacking and, and stacking combos. So I thought that was really interesting that this game had on that battle system to make it really stand out. And, mm-hmm. you know, like we said earlier, it's very satisfying, like in a way that other the other games in this similar kind of system just don't have that sort of satisfying feel. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Anyone who's played a lot of JRPGs has dealt with lots of rote turn-based battle systems, and this is very much not that. Exactly. And I love turn-based battle systems, so this is oh, me knocking too. it. Me too. But yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's very refreshing to get something that's like, hey, let's really turn this concept on its head. And then, you know, pull it off and do it really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, is there anything else you'd like to add? Hmm, about this game? Yeah, it's, it's actually kind of sad thinking about it, because with the rele- recent release of Live Alive, it's, it's like, and that was a Super Nintendo title, and, you know, you have people really looking at this with such praise, and it really reminds you of, of how ambitious and unique uh, these titles were back then. Like you said before, HD development, you know, really hogged resources, so it's like, you you had companies who are willing, who are able to just take risks and just like, you know, do some really off the wall, like really interesting concepts and 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 sort of presentation. And you know, the the the, the, the DS and the 3DS were like the last bastions of that because it was an HD. So once again, if they want if you want to have a creative game. You could put it on those two portables, and it really reflected that. And then I feel like after that, you know, it is something that I think we've lost. And I think that's why people latched on to Live Alive so much, because it's something that you just don't see anymore. And it was such a refreshing game because of that. And the fact that not only was it so unique and complex, but it was extremely successful in its execution. So, yeah, you know, had a high level of polish. Yeah. So it was just. Yeah. So, I mean, hopefully in the future, maybe we'll see stuff like that again, but that'd be really nice. Yeah. And I mean, there are games that are doing that. They're in the indie space, but, you know, it's it's kind of like, you know, it's hard to find the ones that are really quality amid all the sort of like kind of just, you know, RPG maker kind of shovelware. So, you know, those games those games are happening in the indie space to a degree. Though, you know, it is it, it is a shame to not have sort of like the double A production standards that you sort of don't get in a lot of the indie games that you were still getting in, in you know, the DS and 3DS games. Exactly. From, you know, and Atlas in particular. I mean, Atlas is, I mean, we don't need to go off on an <laughs> Atlas <laughs> rant, but it just feels like they've gotten more and more conservative in recent years as a result of of switching to hd development yeah yeah like lot and we see that a lot with like most of these companies i mean square enix notoriously you know with once when she started getting into like the hd development and other issues started cropping up yeah they 
they they started pulling back on the investing in those risk taking games and yeah and i feel like in general yeah the jrpg space has you know suffered because of that and like you said you, you have the indie space but and it, it'll be like even if people have the sort of vision to have the resources and money to be able to deliver on your vision is incredibly difficult, if not impossible, even with things like Kickstarter. So like you said, mm. you end up people having to rely on, you know, the engines like RPG Maker or or relying on doing VNs a lot or other things that are very like either free or very cheap to develop. And it kind of sort of hamstrings the um the game's potential. And it's just a shame, yeah, because it's like you don't you don't really have the double A investment anymore into those kind of games where you have all those resources and time and you have the the developers to help you with that, you know. So I think that's really what the the issue is with that. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, there are occasional examples of like non AAA JRPGs that, you know, kind of float through, you know, float up through the ether. I've been really enjoying Fantasian, which is a Sakaguchi's game, but that's only available on Apple Arcade. And so, yeah, you know, that only happened because Apple wanted, you know, gave him a bunch of money to make sort of a double A JRPG to, you know, build up their their subscription service you know and so exactly. yeah so it's kind of a like rare rare examples but yeah yeah i don't know <laughs> i tended on gloom and doom you know i do think that there are promising things with the indie space and i do think that there are still amazing triple a jrpgs coming out you know yeah i definitely agree but but they are not nearly as wild and risk-taking as this game is and mm. yeah i think just as a public service announcement if you haven't played this game if you don't have this game haven't played it yet get on the 3ds eShop and download it before it closes down absolutely i was lucky enough that i have the versions because i actually bought it back when it was still cheap <laughs> mm-hmm. for both the the, the 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 original and the remake but yeah those are well I, I don't actually know about the remake but i know the original good luck <laughs> so. yeah i think i think the remake the remake was pressed in really low low numbers so i think that's pretty pricey Oh, okay. So it's both. Yeah. I know the DS one is just, yeah, you're not getting that. <laughs> okay. So yeah. So yeah, definitely go pick this up eShop because yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would, yeah, I would definitely recommend getting, getting, getting on there before they shut it down. I think it's, you've got another year, but I don't think you can put money into the eShop account for very Actually, much Actually, I so. think. Let me check that. But I think it's actually by the end of this month that you can't put money anymore. Let me just check that real fast because just in case uh, people want to people wanna buy something off of the eShop. Let me see. So, okay, yeah. Okay, so so you are right. So a, the, the official date, it would be March 27th. You cannot, you cannot make any purchases in the eShop. I believe, let me see in terms of putting money. I know you, you can't use a credit card or put money 
on the eShop. Yeah, that was as of May 23rd of this year. I think there's a workaround where you can still buy things if you put, say, credit into your Switch eShop account or the online. Oh. But I would I, <laughs> I would research that before trying. That credit will transfer over to the 3DS, so... Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that that's definitely a good thing to look into. Okay, so yeah, as of August 29th, it will no longer be possible to use the eShop cards to add funds. So you can you can still redeem download codes if you have money already on your account, you can still use that. If that workaround, you know, works properly, you can probably still use that. Uh, I haven't tried that one out yet, but that sounds really interesting. Okay, so yeah. So that is those are the those are the dates. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's all. That's all. <laughs> a little bit of a little bit of service journalism for everybody. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, I, I go get this game if you haven't played it. It's it's really great. And yeah, I that, that's my takeaway. Really fascinating. And yeah, it is definitely something of a. I don't know if I would call it a hidden gem, but you know, it's definitely a cult classic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I, yeah, definitely cult classic. I mean, maybe a hidden gem. I don't really see people talk about it that much, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Among the JRPG diehards, <laughs> it might be considered exactly. classic, but yeah. But yeah, yeah, before we wrap mm -hmm. up here, is there anything that you would like to plug, Elisa? Ah, so currently... I am now a full-time staff writer at Tech Radar. So if you are, you know, super into tech news, including such that relates back to gaming, like I, I tend to cover a lot of gaming tech, as well as I have, you know, an ongoing thing now where I recommend the best games to look into for that week. So, you know, definitely check me out on there. Check out the site in general. Upcoming... I'll be covering Game Devs of Color Expo. So that'll be for PC Gaming Week. So definitely look forward to that coverage at the end of September. And of course, I'll make sure, you know, when the time comes, we'll post relevant links to that coverage as well. So... Yeah, that is that's it for me to cover. Oh, I guess I guess if you want to hit me up, just talk I'm on Twitter, a James three four seven. You can just chat with me about anything. Honestly, I love talking about things. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, and we'll have links to all that stuff in the show notes as well. <laughs> and yeah, as for combo chain stuff, yeah, please rate and review us on iTunes. That would help a ton as far as, or I guess it's Apple Podcasts now. <laughs> it will always be iTunes in my mind. That still <laughs> helps a ton as far as like getting the word out to people. On Twitter, we are Combo Chain FM. And on Facebook, we are just Combo Chain. And then also we have a Patreon. And so Patreon supporters can get early access to episodes and also exclusive episodes. And I've been working on some video essays and whatnot to as a little experiment. So those will be going up there as well. So yeah, if you're interested and want to help us, you know, help support the show and our hosting costs and whatnot, and maybe help 
buy me a new, <laughs> a new computer before this dies for good, go to patreon.com backslash combo chain. And that's, that's pretty much it. Awesome. Well, it was so much fun to do this again with you, Lisa. Yeah, definitely. So much fun. I had a blast. <laughs> cool. We will be back in a couple of weeks with, uh, we'll be doing Live Alive. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. And we hope everything's going well with y'all. All right. Take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.